0: You are listening to audio from Redeemer Church in Tomball, Texas. To find out more information about our church, visit us at makingmuchofjesus.org. Many of you here are, are, are aware that, probably aware that uh, my wife and I, along with uh, Rocky and Renee Alexander, um, recently had the privilege of going to Shangri, Thailand, and we're working with our missionaries who their church supports, Greg and Corinne Hortman. Rocky was, Rocky was able to teach some much-needed biblical financial principles to a, to a wide variety of groups while we were there. And, and uh, Carol and I were tasked with filming stories to promote and support various mission efforts being undertaken in Shanghai. And, um, you know, one of the biggest takeaways of this trip for me personally was the realization of how incredibly difficult it is to do gospel ministry in this country. And, and, and I was just awed and humbled by the diligent, steadfast work of those who serve there. You see, Thailand is, is, is dominated by, by two things which make openness to the gospel very difficult. First... What's <clears throat> happening again? First, Buddhism is pervasively woven into the fabric of the culture. To be Thai is to be Buddhist... It's everywhere. You see the temples. You see Buddhism is everywhere. And secondly, it's a culture that deeply values respecting and honoring one's elders and family, which in itself is actually a, a, a really refreshing thing is it's kind of become lacking in our culture. I love doing the practice of, of, of whying people to, to show honor and respect But the the noble value of honoring one's elders can actually become an obstacle to the gospel. You see, during one of our our conversations with Greg, he told us that one of the very difficult things about ministering in Thailand is how many almost stories there are. He said that there's many Buddhist people in their lives who who are open to hearing about Christ, and would even say that they, they, they believe the claims of Christ. They come to Christian gatherings, they read the Bible, they sing worship songs. Some of them even work at the Christian school. But if you ask them if they consider themselves to be Christians, they would emphatically say no. See, they have to, they have to remain a Buddhist because to become a Christian would be, would be dishonoring to their parents and their family, and therefore, it's simply not an option. Someone would say that, you know, well, maybe when my parents die, then I'll consider converting. You know what, as I was preparing for this sermon, it it suddenly stood out to me how little things have changed throughout history. You see, the struggle of the author of Hebrews is no different than the struggle of the Hortmans in Thailand. Hebrews is geared to the almost Christians. Those who who are intellectually convinced... But they have not been supernaturally transformed by the power of grace. As has been stated many times in this series, this book is written to encourage and challenge a group of Hebrews who are intrigued by the claims of Christ, but like the people in Thailand, they were not ready to face criticism and rejection by their family or persecution from the culture for their faith. Make no mistake, you know, almost Christians are not unique to Thailand or ancient Hebrews. 21st century America is filled with almost Christians. The sad difference here is that unlike those in Thailand who acknowledge that they're almost believers, here most almost Christians live with a kind of a false security that they are indeed genuine believers, even though they are no more willing to risk their reputations, relationships, comfort, wealth, or life for the cause of Christ. Exposing almost faith is the mission of the book of Hebrews, and especially chapter 11. In the first 10, books of this, first, first 10 chapters of this book, the author, you know, as we know, makes this very precise and compelling intellectual argument for the supremacy of Christ over everything they cherished in Judaism. And that, in fact, Jesus was the fulfillment and the point of the entire Old Covenant system. And then at the end of chapter 10, he makes a dramatic turn in his argument when he suddenly drops a bombshell and quoting Habakkuk 2.4. He says, but my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. So what he's saying is after spending 10 chapters intellectually convincing them of the supremacy of Jesus is that being intellectually convinced is not enough to truly become a follower of Christ requires something called faith which cannot be attained through human effort or self-righteousness, but is only obtained as a gift from God. And this, this was hard to swallow for a Jew because by this time, Judaism had become pretty much what it is today, which is a, a very a, a works-based religion of achieving right standing with God through good works or obeying the 6, 613 mitzvahs or commandments of the law. They believed that their Jewish forefathers achieved right standing with God by good works. So to say that salvation was by grace alone through faith alone seemed like they were suggesting that we change the rules of the game in the middle. So therefore, the chapter 11 is written to demonstrate that salvation by grace through faith is not a new concept. But it's been the case from the very beginning. And So therefore, as we've seen the last two weeks, starts right with Abel and systematically goes in through the entire Old Testament and demonstrates that through faith has always been the only means of right standing with God. And for them to see this, they first must understand what faith is and what faith looks like. So after he drops the bomb of 1028, he immediately gives the definition of faith in, in verse 1 of chapter 11 and further explains it in, chapter six, in verse 6. Now, we've, we've gone over this significantly over the last couple of weeks, but we can't, you, you, you cannot study chapter 11 without continually going back and understanding it through verse 1. The two elements of, verse, of faith in verse 1 are the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. So the question is, what is not seen that faith gives us the conviction of? Well, if you look down at verse 6, it clearly tells us that in order to please God, we must what? First believe, we must believe that he exists. So it's not, it is only through faith that we can be absolutely convinced that God exists. We don't do that on our own. But that's not all. Faith is also the assurance of things hoped for. So what Is it that through faith that we hope for? Well, again, the answer is in verse six. Our hope is that he rewards those who seek him. So you see, chapter 11 is all about proving that justification by faith has not only been God's plan from the beginning, but we can see the evidence in the lives of the saints from the beginning of time. And the evidence is that when by faith that you are convinced not only that God exists, but there is a future reward for those who seek him that blows away anything in this life. Then there is nothing that you will not do and there is no sacrifice that you will not make to achieve this reward. I mean, that's the picture that Jesus paints in Matthew 13 where he says the kingdom of heaven is like a a treasure hidden in a field. Which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all he has and buys the field. Verse 45 Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. You see how that aligns with chapter 11? Paul does it also in Philippians 3. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order, what? That I may gain Christ. And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. This is the lens through which we must see all of Hebrews 11. And we've seen it the last two weeks in verses 1 through 22, and we'll see it brilliantly on display again today. I love the way Jeff put it last week when he said, the evidence of faith is seen in what he called head-scratching obedience. And we saw this this head-scratching obedience the last two weeks in the patriarchs from the book of Genesis, and we'll see it again today for the rest of the Old Testament. And the first example of this faith in our text today is seen in the faith of the parents of Moses, who by faith... It says that they hid their baby rather than following the king's command to kill him. And why did they do this? Verse 23 says, it's because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. (laughs) Now let's be clear. Moses' parents didn't spare his life because he was a cute baby, right? I mean, if that was the case, no one would have obeyed because every parent thinks their kid's cute, right? We see it, I think we see it more, a more accurate, more vivid picture of this in, in Acts 7.20 where it says this. It says, at this time, Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight. You see, Moses' parents weren't compelled by his physical appearance. God had made it known to them that he had a special purpose for Moses. They knew that the penalty for not obeying Pharaoh could certainly lead to their death. But faith revealed to them the truth that Jesus spoke of in Matthew 10, 28. Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. So like those who came before them in a chapter, when they were put in this impossible situation, their decision revealed the true nature of their hearts. Jeff had said last week that, that, uh, that tests are for the benefits of the students and not the teacher. Now, as a former teacher, I, I kind of disagreed with that. Um, <laughs> In there, you know, because teaching does help teachers. It helps us assess the effectiveness of our teaching. Tests they they help us find out if our students are actually learning, right? With God, though, that's not the case. God doesn't test us so that He can find out if our faith is authentic. He already knows. He tests us so that by by our irrational obedience we can have assurance of the authenticity of our faith. That's the purpose of the test. It's what Peter says in 1 Peter 6 and 7. He says, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Why? So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The test of faith for Moses' parents came when they had to choose between between keeping their life now by obeying Pharaoh as their king or risk death to gain a better life with the king of kings. Now, as we know, in this case, they they weren't killed for their faith. God sovereignly arranged it so that Pharaoh's daughter found the child and ended up ended up calling his mom to come and nurse the child and raise the child, and things ended well. Which shows that sometimes God does provide earthly blessings for obedience of faith. We'll see this multiple times in in this chapter. And then we come to Moses himself. Now notice, Moses gets more ink in, in, in Hebrews 11 than anyone else for his multiple tests of faith. Look at the first one in verses 24 through 26. It says, By faith Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. For he was looking to the reward. What a powerful picture of faith we see here. See, Moses becomes the grandson of Pharaoh by adoption, and he enjoys all the wealth and the privilege that comes with being related to the most powerful and wealthy person in the world. And yet, by God's grace, Moses was supernaturally transformed by the gift of faith to see that all of the riches of Egypt paled in comparison to the inheritance and waited those who pursued the treasure of gaining Christ instead. I think you would agree that no one using using human logic would turn their back on being part of the royal family so that they could become one of the slaves who were beaten and mistreated. That's (laughs) head-scratching obedience. I love that the text refers to the reproach of Christ Even though it was several hundred years before the arrival of Christ, by the eyes of faith, Moses was willing to endure the same kind of reproach and humiliation that Christ endured. Why? Verse 26 says, because he was looking to the reward. What what reward could possibly be greater than the splendor of Egypt? He had it all. Who's was the same reward his father Abraham was looking to early in her chapter. A city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. And like Moses, he desires a better country. That is a heavenly one. You see, by the supernatural side of faith, Moses knew that the glory of Egypt was a ghetto in comparison to the heavenly kingdom. So it moved him to do what would seem crazy to most people. Verse 27 says that Moses willingly endured the anger of his grandfather Pharaoh throughout all of the plagues and the Passover and obediently and and obeyed to whatever it took. Why? It says he endured as seeing him who is invisible. The eyes of faith. Based on the definition of of Hebrews 11.1, Moses clearly was one of the righteous ones who lived by faith. We see Moses' next test of faith in verse 29 on the banks of the Red Sea. It says, you know, after all the drama, the plagues, and the sudden exodus from Egypt, all of a sudden Moses finds himself suddenly caught between a sea in front of him, an angry army behind him, and his own people turning on him for for putting him in what seemed like a hopeless situation. That's a tough spot. And if ever, there was, if, if, if ever there was a situation where, as you see in 1038, it talks about shrinking back, this would be a, seem a good time to shrink back. It would seem justifiable, right? But in the midst of this, we can go back and we can read in Exodus 14 that before Moses had any clue that God was about to part the Red Sea, had no idea what was coming, Moses said this to the people. He said, fear not, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you and you have only to be silent. In other words, shut up and watch, right? <laughs> there it is again. Head scratching confidence in the unseen that only comes through the supernatural transformation of faith. He's with an entire nation and makes this proclamation and has no idea what, about what's to happen except that God will provide. But then, sadly, after God miraculously prize you know, rescues them, parts the Red Sea, they cross on dry land, the Egyptians drown. And then, for the next forty years, there's no references in Hebrews 11 of anything heroic happening during the forty years in the desert. Is there? Not one. Instead, we see grumbling, we see regret, we see we see idol worship, we see a people who indeed were shrinking back. And then, finally, after after the forty years of the the desert debacle. A new generation grows up and is ready to enter the promised land. And their test of faith came immediately after God again parted the waters so that they could cross the Jordan River into the promised land. In verse 30 of our text, it says this. It says, by faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. A mere five miles from the, from the river was the impenetrable city of Jericho. And this city was locked up. Scripture says that, that none went out and none came in. Like Moses before him, Joshua was caught in an impossible situation. He had a river behind him and an enemy fortress in front of him but instead of shrinking back, we again see the head-scratching obedience of faith. Walk around the city once each day, and then on the seventh day, walk around it seven times, and after the seventh lap, blow your trumpets and start to shout, and the walls will fall down. (laughs) You ever wonder why God put together such a crazy plan? I mean, if you've been paying attention the last couple of weeks, you're probably getting a pretty good idea, right? God didn't do this so he could find out if they had genuine faith. He knew they did because he gave it to them. He wanted them to see the evidence of their faith. Without faith in this invisible God, there is absolutely zero chance that they were going to follow this plan, right? Made no sense. And make no mistake, the walking, the trumpets, the shouting is not what brought down the walls of Jericho. God spoke, and the walls of Jericho collapsed. All the other stuff was just so that people could see the evidence of the supernatural transformation of faith by radical obedience when it didn't make sense. In verse 31, we see what is maybe the most Surprising member of this team of faith, Rahab. In Joshua chapter two, the Hebrew spies had gone in to kind of scout out Jericho and apparently they thought maybe the most, uh, the best place to go in undetected inside of Jericho would be a brothel. Makes sense. So they're hanging out with this, this prostitute Rahab who informs them that despite the great walls of Jericho, that the people were terrified of the Israelites. It says that, she says to them, she says, their hearts melted and there was no spirit left in any man because of them. So look what we have here. We have an entire city who is intellectually convinced of God's reality and power but only Rahab was compelled by faith to put her trust in God rather than the walls of her city. And as we know, not only was Rahab the only person in Jericho to survive, but as Scripture later shows, she later had a son who we know is, is, is Boaz. First sermon, I said she married Boaz, and everybody we, we, we do Behold the Lamb here, so everybody's like, no, he didn't. <laughs> because as you know, from the, from the story of, if you've, if you've seen her performance of Behold the Lamb, then you know that, that she was the mother of Boaz. And well, Boaz, you know, he had Obed who had Jesse, who had David, who we know as King. You all saw it, right? (laughs) So by faith, Rahab went from being this prostitute to being the great grandmother of King David and the ancestral grandmother of Jesus. Awesome. In verse 32, the author says that he doesn't have time, the time doesn't permit him to tell the faith stories of all the other godly men of the Old Testament, like Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah, David and Samuel, which is a good thing because clearly I don't have the time either. But it does say that through faith they conquered kingdoms they enforced justice, they obtained promises, they stopped the mouths of lions, they quenched the power of fire, they escaped the edge of the sword, they were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, and put foreign armies to flight. Crazy stories of head-scratching obedience and stunning acts of courage because of a supernatural belief in an invisible God and the hope of an eternal reward for those who trusted him. One of the great statements of faith I liked out of, out of this section that deserves, I think, to be mentioned is, the, is that of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who were forced in this, in this test of faith. They were right before being thrown into a furnace because they refused by faith to worship a statue of the king. They said this, O oh God, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O oh King. But if not, be it known to you, O oh King, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Now, I think that this is particularly important because it displays the entirety of the obedience that faith can propel us to. Yes, as we've just seen, faith led many throughout history to to great accomplishments through radical obedience. But it's important to point out, as our text does, that radical obedience doesn't always result in great victories and wonderful blessings in this life. The three guys were supremely confident in God's ability to save them. But remember, the goal of faith is not a better life here, but hope in a country beyond this life. So if Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had burned up in the the furnace, their story would have been no less remarkable and no less worthy of mention in this chapter. And that's why you see this drastic shift in the middle of verse 35. You notice it? It goes from all of these heroic victories to saying this. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging. And even chains and imprisonment, they were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with a sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. History is filled with those whose test of faith led them to accept great loss, scorn, persecution, torture, and death. Why? So they might rise again to a better life. We saw it in the Old Testament. We've seen it and we're getting ready to celebrate the 500th anniversary of of the Reformation. Read the incredible stories of faith of these guys who, who, who endured horrendous deaths in hope of a better city. I don't know the details. I heard just now there was a, a, a church in Egypt was bombed this morning. More say Two churches were bombed this morning. Didn't know that. This is real. We don't obey because it's going to give us a better life here. It might, but that's not why we do it. John MacArthur said that this passage of scripture is one that the prosperity gospel people avoid at all cost. You see, faith doesn't propel people to obedience because they're convinced their life will be better if they obey. Faith propels saints to obedience because they're convinced that what lies beyond this life is worth sacrificing everything here to attain it. Last week we read in verse 13 that that these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, acknowledging that they were strangers and exiles on earth. And likewise, this chapter ends by saying, and all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. What did they not receive in their lifetime that was promised? We know that the Messiah. They had the promise of the Messiah. They never saw the Messiah. They didn't see, it. They didn't see the, the, the messianic kingdom in their lifetime, Right? things into which angels long to look. The encouragement here is that if the the saints of the old covenant lived by faith and the promise of a redeemer that they wouldn't see in their lifetime who would save his people from their sins, then how much more should we on this side of the cross be propelled to radical faith when we now know what even angels didn't know back then? So after three weeks, we come to the end of this this iconic chapter. What do we do with what we studied and read? First and foremost, I think the intended impact of Hebrews 11 is for each of us to audit the current status of our lives. The goal is that this should bring the focus of our the the status of our lives in a sharp focus. I mean, each one of us is currently, I would say, is in one of three categories. There are those who are who are spiritually blind and rebellious to the reality of Christ. There are those who are intellectually convinced that he exists, and maybe even that he has been. that that he is God, and that he indeed indeed, atoned for the sins on a cross 2,000 years ago. And then there are those who have been supernaturally transformed by faith to see him as supremely valuable above, above everything on earth, and worth sacrificing anything and everything that by any means possible, we might be in his presence eternally. So is your life marked by rebellious indifference to Jesus? Is it marked by a passive acknowledge of his existence? Or a head-scratching pursuit of a treasure you currently can't even see, but you will stop at nothing to attain? The conclusion of the message of Hebrews is actually in chapter 12. Now, Jeff will explore this more in detail after Easter, but we can't conclude Hebrews eleven without reading the purpose of this great text in chapter twelve. Chapter twelve. <clears throat> One and two. Therefore, since we've therefore it means in other words, after you we've we've yeah i've I've just given you this laundry list of all of these great believers in the old of of, of faith. you hear him pleading with these almost believers? Come on, cross the line, don't shrink back. I've just shown you what authentic faith in Christ looks like through the lives of, of so many that came before you who willingly jettisoned every temporary pleasure of this world and even endured persecution, torture, sawing 2 martyrdom that by any means necessary, they might gain Christ the founder and perfecter of our faith. And as Jeff pointed out a couple weeks ago in, in chapter 11, that, faith, that to call this the faith hall of fame is a misnomer because a hall of fame honors those who had skills and talents that the rest of us can only dream of. But that's not the case here. Hebrews is not a call to admire the people in this chapter, but to imitate them. That's why it says, let us also lay aside every weight. And then he says, in the middle of verse two, something that always blows my mind. I think it's one of the most incredible statements in all of scripture. It says, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. (sighs) what was the joy that was set before him that could possibly make God himself willing to become flesh and endure the suffering and shame of crucifixion on a Roman cross? And the answer is the same joy that we have heard about throughout Hebrews 11. He also was looking forward to the joy of a heavenly city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is Jesus himself. You can read about this this city in Revelations 21 and 22, but in short, it's a a stunning place where, where sin doesn't exist, where suffering doesn't occur, and where death doesn't happen. It's a place where you never have elections because Jesus will physically and eternally be the king, and he will be our God, and we will joyfully and eternally be his people. Now, if if Jesus himself was so excited about this that he was willing to endure the cross to make it all possible, church, how much more should we be willing like the saints of Hebrews 11 to lay aside every weight and every sin which clings so closely and run with endurance the race that is set before us? My prayer for us is that, is that the message of Hebrews 11 will so move us, will so convict us and inspire us that we will be able to say like Paul in Acts 20, that imprisonments and afflictions may await me, but I do not consider my life of any value or as precious to myself if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. That's a life that moves beyond being intellectually convinced to being supernaturally transformed by the power of faith. Pray with me. Thank you for listening. To find out more information about our church, visit us at makingmuchofjesus.org.